Uh, I want to start this morning, before we pray, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the, well, we're going to stop right there. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you uh, teach us, meet us in this moment and speak to us, uh, help us to grow and become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, and and, uh, help us to hear from you now, Father. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Remember playing the game hide-and-seek as a kid? I mean, we've all done this, right? All of us. When my kids were young, we'd occasionally play this game. Sometimes uh, we'd wind up playing it indoors even, right? And the kids run to other rooms and they hide and whatnot. It was very exciting. Uh, Just the strategy the kids would use on where to hide was interesting to observe. Little kids trying to keep still, you know, when they're hiding, but they're giggling. That whole thing, uh, the search for them, you would see their backsides sticking out from the corner of the sofa, kind of a deal when they were real young. I think my kids, obviously they wanted to hide, but they also very much wanted to be found. Hide and seek is a great game. Uh, and if you keep hide and seek just a, a kid's game, it's a game you can play, I suppose, well into your 90s or 100 or whatever. And you can play it with joy and you can play it without harming you or anyone else. But as adults, our confusing... And uh, sometimes painful lives lead us to play a new kind of game, a game we would just call hide. It's just hide. And it's a game where we hide, but it feels like no one is looking for you, and it's not really very fun. We're in the second week of a series that we're calling Quitting Time. Uh, It's a four-week journey on uh, looking at certain toxic habits that we embrace, and almost we do it without thinking. And uh, these toxic habits hurt us the way we live. They hurt us spiritually. They can even hurt us physically. Last week, we talked about the the toxic habit of hurry and the need for Sabbath in our lives. This morning, we're talking about hiding. Uh, And uh, we don't want to admit it. 
really that we play this game, but we're actually playing this game right now when we come to church. We're, we're actually playing this game. Think about the skills you need to play this game and be really good at it. Uh, you hold back your opinion so others won't think negatively of you. Have you ever done that? Yeah, you have. So have I. Uh, you pretend to be somebody you're not at work or with the family or with friends or at church. Uh, you pretend to be a little better than you actually are. You ever done that? Anybody here not done that? Oh, you're all guilty. Good. Yeah, me too. Uh, you push people away by being overly confrontational or aggressive. It's a way to keep distance between yourself and them. You edit the truth when, a difficult, uh, when you're in a difficult situation or conversation. You kind of just shade things in your favor. You overschedule yourself to avoid community, you know, and commitments you don't want to make. You make your life look better than it really is on your Facebook page. That's your digital life, right? We talked about that, how a lot of times our digital lives don't really match our, our real lives. And hiding becomes so, it begins so innocently and often unconsciously. Hiding isn't just about telling lies. Or it's not just about shading the truth. Hiding is about living, living the lies, it's about trading our real selves, our authentic selves for the safety of pretending, for the safety of isolation, for the safety of pain management. And if you're hiding, well, just know this, you're not alone. Not at all. There's lots of hiding going on. One study finds that 25% of Americans say they have no one with whom to discuss personal problems of any kind. That's incredible. That's lonely. Another survey found that one in 10 feel very lonely. Very lonely was the phrase used. One in 10. And 48% think that we are getting lonelier in general uh, all the time, despite our network-rich environment of things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and what have you. Uh, there's somebody that I actually discovered on, uh, on YouTube doing TED Talks. Her name is Dr. Brene Brown. She's a professor at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work and a very, very interesting lady who's done a lot of interesting research for many, many years now. She's researched things like vulnerability, courage, worthiness, uh, people's feelings of shame. And she says this about us, uh, our, our time, our era. She says, we are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. Tell us some more good news, right? I mean, that's incredible. And she says that is because we run from vulnerability, being who we really are. We run from embracing the truth about ourselves. And so we medicate so that we won't feel the pain or the shame. And uh, of course, that's not good news. That's not good news at all. But there is some good news. And the good news would be this. The good news is that God knows all about hiding. He knows all about hiding. Hiding is a significant theme in the Bible. I mean, Adam and Eve hide in the garden. God comes looking for them. And in Genesis 3, 9 there, God asks the, the probing question, where are you, right? And hiding in the Bible didn't stop there. David hides from his brokenness and from his sin, tries to cover it up. Jonah tries to hide from God and, and to avoid responsibility. Elijah goes off and hides in a cave when he's depressed. Nicodemus comes to Jesus one time at night in secret, really hiding from his peers, the disciples are in an upper room at one point, hiding in fear. Peter hides his identity, doesn't want to admit he follows Jesus, even lies about it. Ananias and Sapphira, two people in the early church, actually hide and pretend to be something they're not. There is lots of hiding going on in the Bible, and not much good comes of it. Not much good at all. 
After the fall, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, Adam blames Eve and then Eve blames the serpent. Lots of blaming. David destroys a family and his reputation. Elijah falls into self-loathing and depression. The disciples become prisoners of fear. Peter literally betrays the one who loves him more than anyone else has ever loved him. He betrays Jesus. So it's, it's despair, it's blame, it's loneliness, it's fear, it's shame. Not a lot of good comes from hiding. Again, Dr. Benet Brown, she says, when you trade your uh, authenticity for safety, you experience the following. In other words, when you trade your true self and decide to live as another self, this is what happens to you. You experience the following anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, rage, blame, resentment, and inexplicable grief. And this is what she's finding from research. All that stuff can be a consequence from hiding. Another consequence that comes from hiding is something we're familiar with. It's loneliness. You know, hiding by definition is not being known. It's not being loved. It's not being accepted for who you really are. And that adds up to deep feelings of loneliness and isolation and separation. And chronically lonely people suffer from all kinds of physical ailments, I found out. Higher blood pressure is one of them. Uh, also, chronically lonely people have a higher risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. Amazing, amazing. Loneliness interferes with a whole range of everyday functioning. It affects sleep patterns. It affects memory and memory loss. It affects logical and verbal reasoning. And these results of hiding uh, and loneliness, they are felt deep, deep down in a human's soul. Stuff's not easy to shake. There's a researcher, Frieda Fromm Reichman, and she, I think, died in the early 1950s probably, but she really did some groundbreaking studies on this thing of loneliness. And she says that loneliness is the worst of human conditions because at its deepest level, she says, loneliness is the want of intimacy. And she says that all human beings crave intimacy. It is the deep longing of every human spirit, every human soul. And the psalmist knew this thousands of years ago. This is not news to God. It's not news to anyone who's doing any kind of self-examination. The psalmist said this, says, he said, turn to me. He's pleading to God, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. And I know lots of people who have prayed that prayer. I've met with some of you. I've prayed that prayer. What's interesting is God knows our longing. He knows. He knows how badly we want to be known. He knows how badly we want to be found. You know, our back end is sticking out from the corner of the sofa. And that's why he, he comes into the garden and he asks Adam and Eve, where are you? What I love about Genesis 3 is that God comes into the mess. God comes into the wreckage. God comes right to ground zero to deal with this issue. And instead of saying, well, what have you done now? You know, why did you do what you did? I gave you everything. Why have you done such a thing? Instead of that, uh, God asks the question, where are you? And it's not as if God doesn't know where they are. So that's, that's really not the, the, the reason that he asks this question. He knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. He's not asking the question to learn something. Uh, he's asking the question so that Adam and Eve can learn something about him. Adam and Eve are hiding 
Because you see, they realize they have broken friendship with God. They did not trust him or take him at his word. They chose to ignore what he said to them. That's a breaking of friendship and relationship. They did what they wanted to do. They wanted actually to be like God or be God. And so now they've lost their innocence. Uh, They've lost what theologians refer to as that, that original righteousness. And they betray God. They blame each other. And now they are missing really a piece of their original identity. And they're ashamed. They want to hide from God. They even want to hide from each other. And so they make coverings. But this God, this God who knows them, This God who literally knows every single thing about them comes to them, comes into their mess, comes to rescue them, comes to restore relationship. And this is is exactly why I understand. This is why when Jesus was here on earth ministering, he characterized his mission this way. He said, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. And of course, what was lost was you and me. You and me. Because the truth about us is, as we said earlier, we're, we're hiding And we're all struggling with who we really are. And so we manufacture an identity. uh, One that we hope will make us uh, more acceptable and more lovable to the people around us. And ironically, the, the more people like our manufactured identity, the more isolated and lonely we become. Because we know they're not really loving the real me. They're loving the manufactured me. Hiding always leads to the real you colliding with Uh, real life. That's just what happens. The real you collides with your real life, your real life struggles, your real life failures, and your real life ups and downs. And real life is not kind. We know this. Uh, In real life, we hear messages over and over and over like you aren't good or smart or clever enough not nearly as good or smart or clever as you pretend to be. You don't make enough money. Your job isn't good enough. You're not the parent you pretend or you want to be. You aren't attractive enough. Bottom line, you just don't measure up. And deep down inside, we know there's some truth to that. These messages have incredible power over us. And we find ourselves doing unimaginable things to numb the pain that we feel from this. Hiding becomes our self-protection response. When we come to believe that we're unlovable, we're unforgivable, we simply do not measure up. Am I even close to the truth here? Okay, some of you agree, yeah. And so what we do is we do our best to create and to sustain. You know, we talk about fake news. You're hearing a little bit about that, like fake selves. That's what we do. One that we hope people will love. And the pressure to maintain and to protect that fake self is never ending. And it's also never satisfying. It is never satisfying. Because again, we know all the love that we get from others is only given to the person we pretend to be. And so we have to hide even more. And that's the power of shame. I'm ashamed that I am not who I pretend to be. Uh, Again, Dr. Brown says this. She says, uh, when we can't recognize shame and understand our triggers, shame blindsides us, gets us to do things we hardly think about, but they're destructive things. It washes over us, and we want to slink away and hide. Uh, Our unreal identities dictate our behavior every day. And that's the problem. These unreal identities that we adopt, they start to dictate our behavior, and they take us down paths we really seriously should not be going down. Pastors do this all the time. 
not me, but I mean, other pastors do this all the time. Pastors are notorious for having inauthentic identities, right? I mean, we're always telling people how to live and what to do. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of part of what pastors do. So when we mess up, we can't let anyone know that we have messed up because no, no one would listen to us, right? They'd figure out that we struggle just as much as they do. And so pastors pretend all the time to be better parents or better friends or better people than we really are. And what that means is pastors are a pretty lonely lot. That's what that means. And I've, I've had many, many, many conversations with pastors over the years. And I'll tell you, uh, they have told me oftentimes they don't have a single friend in their congregation, nor do they want one. Because they believe they can't tell the truth about who they really are, because if they did, no one would want them as their pastor. And that's just pastors I'm talking about. But you know what I've found over the years to be true? This isn't just a problem for pastors. It's a problem for mothers and dads and spouses and kids and CEOs and plumbers and electricians and engineers and accountants and salesmen and on and on and on and on and on. It's a problem for everyone. So what do we do? This is a serious, toxic problem. Pretending. How do we ever get to the place where we can live authentically and be who we really are? Uh, I love the Apostle Paul had a he admits that he has this same problem that we're talking about. He described himself one time very honestly and unflatteringly. He wrote this. He said, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. And then he asks this question, who will rescue me from this body of death? And that really is the real question right there. That is the $64,000 question. And Paul's answer is real simple, but it's real powerful. It's frankly, I think, the only real answer to this dilemma. Paul says this. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus can and does rescue us from this problem of hiding if we will let him. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions that we experience. We live with our false selves and our true selves always doing battle, but God enters into that world, our world, our mess, our pretending, our shame, and God pursues us just like he did Adam and Eve in the garden when they were hiding, and he calls out to them, where are you? Now, of course, you know, our answer is, I'm over here, God, I'm hiding, <laughs> Because I, I don't feel like I do measure up. Uh, I don't feel like I really cut it. I know this for sure. I'm not innocent. And I know I'm not righteous. And so my, my gut response to that is just to go hide. You know, here's the interesting thing. Religion is the worst thing for the person who's hiding. I'll tell you why. Because religion tells us if you work hard enough. If you clean yourself up to a certain point, they're a little vague about what that point is, but you know, if you clean yourself up to a certain point, if you pray enough, if you are faithful enough to God, if you stay out of enough trouble, then maybe God, however you define that God, will love you. That's what religion says. And that's what religious people do. 
They're all about the business of cleaning themselves up and making themselves better and working harder, trying harder, pull themselves up by the bootstraps. But the gospel, friends, the, the message that we celebrate here and that we embrace here says something else. The gospel says no matter what you've done and no matter where you've been and no matter how often you fail, the God who made you is pursuing you. He loves you. And he comes walking in the cool of the day in the garden, just like he did when he was seeking Adam and Eve. And again, I hope you see, you see, this was Jesus' mission when he was here on earth. This is why Jesus came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The gospel says that God, in his incredible love, seeks out humanity. It's not the other way around. Every religion is it's trying to find God. It's trying to seek God. It's trying to understand God. It's trying to appease God, right? Through the sacrifices we offer or the performance that we render. But the gospel says God already knows you fully. And he knows where you've been. He knows what you've done and what you're going to do. God understands you and God loves you still. That's the gospel of Jesus. It's not religion. You see, Jesus came to liberate us from all of our internal, even external contradictions. Now, how does he do that? Well, there's an interesting story, one that I love, uh, we find uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, and this is where Jesus helps someone come out of hiding, quite literally. I think it's a story that's really instructive and helpful to us. I'd like to kind of march us through this. It's in John chapter 4. One day Jesus meets with a promiscuous woman at a well in the middle of the day. This is a woman who had been in and out of five different marriages, we find out. She was currently living with another man who was there for her sixth relationship at least and probably a guy that she's hoping will marry her. And she comes to the well to draw water in the middle of the day because, as you know, she really doesn't want to meet anyone. She doesn't want to encounter anyone. I mean, it's scorching hot, so go to the well in the middle of the day. People are going early in the morning or early in the evening, usually. Nobody went to the water hole in the middle of the day except for this woman. This woman didn't want to see anybody. She had no friends. Hold on to that thought. She had no friends. People were just something she wanted to avoid, so much so she'll go to the water hole in the middle of the day. And she was sick and tired of all the people judging her, constantly judging her, making snide remarks. Oh, there she is. There's that homewrecker. She can only get a man by sleeping with him. Everybody knows that. She's sick of this. And so she's hiding from people. People hurt her. People make her angry. And so she goes to quench her thirst at a time when she knows nobody will be at the well. But in her attempt to avoid her community and keep away from people, she runs into the Son of God, Jesus, who knows that only misfits and, and untouchables and outcasts come for water in the middle of the day, right? Or passers-by, which is what Jesus was on that day. And she comes and Jesus starts up a conversation with her. Again, shock. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, a teacher. Uh, and he starts up a conversation with her. And one thing leads to another. And Jesus makes it very clear to her that he already knows everything about her. How many times she's been married. How many men she's been with. And even who she's living with now. 
And yet, Jesus offers himself to her, offers her forgiveness, offers her relationship, offers her living water. In other words, he loves her anyway. And she is stunned, absolutely stunned. For her, in fact, this becomes a transformational encounter with Jesus, a life-changing encounter. She understands who Jesus is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus very clearly in this text says, that's me, that's who I am. I am the Messiah. And he loved her, the Messiah loved her enough to come looking for her, and it changes her life completely. So much so that she does something she would never ordinarily do. She stops hiding. And she starts caring about other people. And she even uh, reconnects with members of her community. The text tells us that she runs back to that town to speak to those people, the people that she's been avoiding. And she says to anyone who will listen, it says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Friends, curious question. Does anyone in your life know everything you ever did? I bet not. Because you believe, and so do I, that if they knew everything you ever did, they would not love you. Do you see how Jesus contradicts that deep-seated belief that we all have? Do you understand the magnitude of what we're talking about right now? That there is somebody who knows every single thing about you and me, and he loves us anyway. There's no fooling him. You see, this woman, for the first time in her life, has met a man who knows everything about her and loves her still. For the first time, she is fully known. And she is fully loved. She doesn't have to pretend, not with Jesus. She doesn't have to perform. She doesn't have to hide. She is fully known and she is fully loved. And now she is therefore fully free to love others without really having to worry about what they think of her. And she runs back to her village and the people can see something's different. Oh my goodness, something is different in this woman's life. The one we ostracize, the one we hate, the one we disparage, the one we judge. Man, there is something different in this woman. And she starts telling them, this is what we read. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, but in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. The woman they despise. And this is her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So obviously more conversation happened between Jesus and this woman than is recorded for us in John 4. But it says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. That too is shocking for a Jewish rabbi to stay two days in a Samaritan village. If you know anything about the tension between Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. But Jesus stays there two days and it says, because of his words, many more became believers, became followers of Jesus right there in that Samaritan village where this woman lived. Now, I'm sure Jesus talked to them a lot about his mission, why he had come to seek and to save the lost. That was them. And he may have told them that he had also come to die. He had told others that message, that he had come to die, to lay down his life. That was part of his mission. And on the cross, Jesus was, of course, covering our shame. He was covering our brokenness. He was covering our nakedness, our sin, you see. 
And on the cross, even though he knew us, he was loving us sacrificially. I got to tell you, when we come to understand, I mean deeply understand that love, when what Jesus did for us penetrates our hearts, that is a transformational encounter with Jesus. That changes us spiritually at a fundamental level. That lo- at a fundamental level. That's what the Bible calls being born again. Being born again is just having a transformational encounter with Jesus Christ, one that changes you spiritually because you understand who he is and what he's done and how he forgives and how he loves. And when you have that transformational encounter, now a human being is suddenly freed up to love others, even people who don't love us. And that's what this woman did. She goes back to her village to share the news, the good news that she's discovered. And we're told that many of the people believe her. They become Jesus followers just like her. Question, do you think any of these new followers of Jesus in that Samaritan village became friends with this woman? How many say yes? Okay, a few of you are right. That's correct. Of course, surely they did. I mean, she had become the the bridge linking them to this good news. Surely they became friends. Now, imagine, I don't know if that happened overnight. I don't know if that took time or what have you. But imagine that. Here is a woman who once had no friends and now has a village full of them. This is remarkable. Remarkable transformation. These are friends who know everything about her or most everything. But they love her. And she learns to love them. She's now out of hiding. See how this works? And I would say this right here in this story, it illustrates the two absolutely essential things that help us come out of hiding. The absolutely two essential things. The first one is this thing I just talked about, the transformational encounter with Jesus. To be fully known and to be fully loved and to understand what that cost, what made that possible. That's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's what makes being fully loved possible. That's why Jesus can love us. That's how Jesus loved us, sacrificially. You see, with the knowledge that I am fully known but fully loved, I can now love you, I can forgive you, I can reach out to you regardless of whether you love or forgive or even appreciate me. I have a platform, I have a basis that's solid, that's sound, that's never going to change, that I can move out from and into relationships with people, which are always tough challenges, right? That's the first thing. But the second thing there is transformational friendship. This is another thing that, that we understand from Scripture God uses to change us, to bring us, to help us uh, quit hiding. Transformational friendships. Transformational friendship is friends who know you and they they certainly challenge you, but they love you and they forgive you when you fail. They're there when you're in pain or when you're in grief or when you're in despair or when you're scared or when you're lonely and uh, when you want to hide, they're there. They remind us that we are loved, loved by them and loved by Jesus. I'll tell you what, we all need transformational friendship in our lives. And you don't usually make these kinds of things quickly. 
And again, I don't know how it worked for this woman in the Samaritan village. I don't know if the transformation was quick or not with so many people coming to follow Jesus at the same time. Uh, but ordinarily, transformational friendship is, uh, is work and it takes time. And what we do is we kind of develop these friendships while we navigate the messiness, the ups and downs and the failures and the successes of life. And we have to be honest about those ups and downs. That's how real transformational friendships are developed. And this is why we encourage everyone in this church to be in little communities of spiritual friendships where we can learn together and pray together and do life together and, and even serve others together. We call these things life groups and they're anything but magic. But they are places to practice coming out of hiding. And that's why we encourage everyone to be in a life group. It's a place to practice sacrifice. It's a place to practice selflessness, caring about others and working on that. That's how transformational friendships are built. Takes courage, takes perseverance, takes cooperation, takes having crucial conversations, which are always interesting. We've talked about that. It takes uh, serving each other. It takes listening and learning to become a better listener. It takes practicing patience and holding on to healthy boundaries. Transformational friendships are inconvenient at times, they can be tiring at times. They will be messy at times, but man, they are worth it. They are worth it. They're worth it because God will not only release and free others from hiding as you love them, as you forgive them, as you minister into their lives, but God will also transform you in the process. God will bring you out of hiding as well. And that's one of the things that's supposed to make Christian community different than other clubs or organizations. You know, we did something so weird. I don't know if some of you yawned and probably hated it. My generation in particular tends to have had a negative response to things like uh, liturgy in churches. And so when we read things together, it's like, oh, put me to sleep, right? Tough. Because... The re, you know, we, we did a confession of sin together. Why would we do that? How embarrassing is that? You stand up together and you read about how you suck. <laughs> and you state that out loud. Who wants to go do that? Did you pay any attention to what we said about the person standing next to you? Oh, yeah, and you too? It's quite a confession. But don't you see that's liberating? That leads us into the gospel and the truth about Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers us. That's why we practice doing that here. Because it's a truth about us. Let's just acknowledge it. It's hard to get it right. And we don't. Um, you know, life groups are not just a cute ministry idea that churches pick up on. Life groups are actually lifelines. Lifelines to others and, and lifelines to you. Life groups can help us come out of hiding and discover more of Jesus' love and experience love from, from others, which we vitally, vitally need. But the only way to move into transformational friendships is to be honest about ourselves, honest about ourselves when we gather here, honest about ourselves when we gather in small groups. 
And I got to tell you, I can't really live without this. I am very thankful that over the years, this has been a congregation that lets me fail. It tells me to stop it, but I mean, you know, you let me fail and you forgive. I would say, largely speaking, um, we are a community of grace, which I think we're supposed to be grace to one another. In some of my darkest times, it was transformational friends who literally were my lifeline. When I felt like a failing pastor or a failing parent or a failing husband, uh, these friends loved me, forgave me, loved me in the name of Jesus. And that is the kind of community we're supposed to be to one another. I got to tell you, if you claim to follow Jesus, Jesus wishes for you and me to to live life this way, to live in the context of his love and forgiveness. And because he loves us and his love is freeing, he wishes us to build authentic community together with others where we love them. I mean, this is why Jesus came, don't you see? Three big things that we talk about here a lot. The reaching up, the reaching in, the reaching out. This is reaching in. This is the connection we talk about. And I would just say to you, even if you don't like anything I've said this morning, uh, but let's say you have faith in Jesus, well, um, <laughs> get ready. Because ready or not, here he comes. Nobody plays the game of hide and seek the way Jesus does. So ready or not, here he comes. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you pursue us. Gosh, you pursue us so much you sent Jesus to lay down his life for us, to, to seek and to save that which was lost and, and to take up his life again and now give life to us. God, may we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. May we experience a transformational encounter with him and may we experience and work on and practice the art of transformational friendship with one another. Thank you, God, for those who lead life groups in this church, those who step out and, and take on the, the role of guiding us in conversation and in the art of relationship. And we just thank you, Father, and pray your blessing on those who gather and lead and host life groups. And I pray for this congregation, Lord, that, that you would guide all of us into connectedness, into relationships that change us and make us and mold us, into relationships, God, where we get to serve, serve others. And I pray this, Father, for the glory of, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.